Cool fact, a crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Also, you can get health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for you. Learn more at UH1.com. Hello, and welcome to Rational Security, the awkward segue edition. I'm Shane Harris of The Daily Beast. Joined as always today by my friends Benjamin Woodis. How are you, Ben? I am bruised and battered. Did Tamara beat you up? Uh, no. He it, fell down the stairs. I, sure. Yeah, Tammy had nothing to do with it. <laughs> he, he walked into a door. No, he, he walked into a stove. It was his fault. He deserved it. <laughs> oh my God. <laughs> He probably did. That, that, that's what she told the police. Oh, my God. Oh. Well, we, will, we will get to how I uh, got to be bruised and battered in the object lessons okay. section. Okay. All right. And you promised, like, a, you know, you don't need me to call for help or anything. Uh, you know, somebody did walk up to me on the metro and say, it's okay to leave. <laughs> we can get you out tonight. Uh, and also by my friend Tamara Kaufman with us. Not a domestic abuser. I swear it wasn't me. It totally wasn't you. It was the one-armed man. It was you. (laughs) (laughs) I saw him jump out of a water pipe. Um, there's some movie coming out, by the way. Oh, it's another one of those damn Liam Neeson movies. It's, it's, it's the, it's... Taken 356. Yeah, Taken Someplace Else. Um, (laughs) uh, but it's, it's, no, but it's not even that. It's like, it's another one of the Taken movies, and I saw the preview, and I'm like, this is, um, what's that? The Fugitive. It's The Fugitive. He's like holding his hands up, and a cop is chasing him, accusing him of killing his wife, and he jumps out of a drain pipe. Like, in, like, just like just in the future. Just like in the future. It's, it's astonishing. I thought it was an SNL sketch. So, you know the movie The Player, right? Oh, yeah. Okay. Movie. So you can imagine the pitch for this Liam Neeson movie. Yeah. It's like The Fugitive. <laughs> meets Taken. Meets Taken. <laughs> but no star. Except Liam Neeson. <laughs> Not without right. my fugitive. <laughs> God, he's laughing all the way to the bank. Though. Oh, totally. Um, this week on the show, the FBI is interrogating the wife of a senior ISIS official about Western hostages. The Justice Department hands down indictments against Chinese people for spying on the U.S. Big shocker there. And the Tunisian president comes to Washington and eats bad salmon. Uh, plus, in our object lesson, we're going to go back to the movies again, sort of. <clears throat> and uh, Ben will tell us why he's so battered. Um, before we get to wordplay, though... Um, I feel like we should spend a few minutes at the top of the show talking about events in Iraq in the past few days, and specifically the fall of Ramadi to ISIS. Uh, Bob Gates was on, I think, CBS maybe this week, saying we have no strategy in Iraq, which seems to me the most plainly obvious thing that anyone has said all week about what's going on in Iraq. This, to me, feels like a, a momentous a, a moment, like a turning point, where it's just you know the administration this week resorted to basically ticking off the number of airstrikes to claim that we were making progress in Iraq, which immediately drew a lot of comparisons to Vietnam and counting off, you know, the number of casualties to say that, look, we're making progress here. Um, Adam Schiff, the ranking member of the intelligence community, came out and said it should set off alarm bells that the administration is measuring the war this way, that really isn't a strategy. I don't know. I mean, it, it just feels like this is a moment where we're sort of, it's kind of a come to Jesus kind of a, uh, uh, moment here. And it just feels to me like, you know, it's Iraq coming off the rails for real. I don't know. What do you think? You know, the thing is, unlike Syria, the administration has had an actual strategy in Iraq that brings together military operations with politics and diplomacy, trying to work on getting the Iraqi government to more effectively incorporate Sunnis, both in civilian areas, but especially 
rebuilding the army and the idea of an Iraqi National Guard, the political side of that strategy had stalled out. And um, and that made it hard to effectively implement the military side because you couldn't get Iraqi Sunnis on board in the fight against right. ISIS. And Ramadi, of course, is, is some evidence of that. Um, but, you know, so I don't think that the strategy itself is necessarily wrong, but it is clearly not succeeding. Um, that's a different problem. The other thing, though, that I think comes out of this is that the administration really has been touting airstrikes as an effective tool against ISIS, saying, you know, whenever they mass their forces, we're able to use airstrikes to break them up, and that's why they, we've been able to beat them back. But in Ramadi, the airstrikes didn't do the job. Mm-hmm. Um, and the administration is now trying to explain that away. But the fact of the matter is ISIS has adapted its battle tactics to American airstrikes. And, air, you know, it's the limits of air power, the need for an effective ground partner, and the political obstacles to creating one. And on the point of effective ground partner, we should say, the reason that Ramadi fell is largely because the Iraqi military turned and ran from Ramadi Again. Uh, following a series right. of awful suicide bombings, but basically said, forget it, we're not fighting this, and went home. Which, I mean, I guess it raises the other question of, you know, it, it, it just this seems like the moment where it's like, all is lost to me. You know, we've spent all of these years and all of this money trying to train up a military that's not fully integrated. It's not going to be. It's, it's going to have sectarian divides, and they've turned and they've run. And where do we go from here? I'm well, not. I'm not sure that's right. I mean, why? Why should? It's not the first time they've turned and ran. It is not the first time that they've tra- turned and ran. And the uh, conclusion that the Iraqi army may be a hopeless project uh, may be warranted. But I'm not sure why one would conclude from that that the. Uh, you know, that therefore it's hopeless and that there's no countervailing force you could create to, to ISIS. I mean, well, who some, would they be? Would they be? I mean, you'd have to be willing to sort of bite your lip and, and invest something in the Shia militias. Yeah, but okay, that is a recipe for renewed civil conflict in Iraq. The fact is that the Shia militias are going into Ramadi now to fight this fight, and that's very dangerous because um, we've seen... In some of the areas that they've liberated from ISIS, they've engaged in some very ugly retaliatory practices against the Sunni population, which further deepens the alienation and the division and the mistrust, and is very likely to produce the next ISIS, you know, the next Sunni um, extremist movement that believes its job is to push Shia out of Iraq, and that's a recipe for another civil war. So I think that's exactly the wrong direction to go. But, Shane, I think your account of the Iraqi army is not quite fair because the U.S. did invested a great deal, built a military that wasn't fantastic, but it was able to take over security after we tamped down the civil conflict after the surge. Um, and it was broken. That mm. army was broken. That multi-sectarian Iraq was broken by Maliki during his two terms as prime minister. And the Obama administration, I I think many feel, myself included, did not push him hard enough to stop doing the things that were um, doing all this damage, undoing all the work that we had done and wasting that investment. So we do have to start over now in terms of rebuilding that Iraqi military. And it's not going to happen without political inclusion in Baghdad. But I don't think it's fair to say that we tried to build an Iraqi military and it just failed. It was wrecked. Yeah. This brings me back to I feel like my crazy prediction is coming true, though, that there'll be U.S. troops on the ground by the time we elect the next president. 
Oof, yeah, looking more likely now. Yeah. On that cheerful that. note, let's Yay. have an awkward let's have an awkward segue. segue. What? Oh, you want to talk about something else? Talk about. I don't know, China. Let's start with China. That's the most awkward segue from this. Let's actually go to your wordplay, Ben. Uh, the Justice Department uh, cracking down again yeah. on naughty, well, naughty espionage. Well, so this is an interesting development. The Justice Department has indicted six more Chinese uh, nationals uh, uh, for stealing U.S. trade secrets and giving them to Chinese outfits, or in this case, building a Chinese tech outfit around uh, allegedly u- stolen U.S. Uh, trade secrets. This, wow, uh, they do that? That's uh, yeah. so awful. <laughs> so, I can't believe that. So there are two really interesting things about this indictment. One of them is that it does not involve allegations of hacking. Mm-hmm. It involves mm-hmm. allegations of coming to the United States, getting a PhD, working for a company, stealing its secrets, and taking them back to a Chinese university. But the second thing that I think is particularly interesting about this indictment is that we actually have one of the people in custody. So when the FBI went after those six or five members of the People's Liberation Army for hacking, the indictment was a little bit of a joke because it didn't have custody of any of the people. Uh, But this time, one of these guys, who is a professor at a Chinese university, showed up in Los Angeles recently to give a speech and found himself arrested by the FBI and is now facing a pretty substantial indictment in the San Jose Division of the Northern District of California. Um, And uh, I think this potentially really ups the ante with the Chinese, who have uh, largely uh, been able to ignore uh, the prior indictment because, you know, we had no way of effectuating it. But now we've arrested a, you know, a pretty well-respected person who, uh, you know, Presumably, China does not want people like that not to be able to travel outside the country or to the United States in particular. And so I think it's an interesting move by the Justice Department uh, and a continuation of uh, the strategy that John Carlin has talked about publicly of using indictments as a as a form of leverage in the sort of quiet cyber war with China over IP. I think that's right. And Jim Comey had a, he was at the Georgetown Cyber Law Institute on Wednesday. And he sort of amplified, or he's going along with this theme that you're talking about, where he said, you know, we're deploying agents and investigators around the world to try and track down people who are stealing intellectual property. We want to put people in jail, as he said Mm -hmm. it. And when we can't do that, we will name and shame them. And we can't. when we don't want to just name and shame them, we'll use economic sanctions as well, per that executive order that we've talked about before. So it, it is it kind of is a remarkable turnaround. You know, three years ago, four years ago, certainly during the Bush administration, I think U.S. officials were very reluctant to get into any kind of a public feud with China over IP theft, over hacking, over industrial espionage for fear of upsetting this larger relationship. And they don't seem to be afraid of that now. They're being very, very public about it. I don't know how that's playing in China. That's a little more opaque to me. But Well, well so and the- I wonder how it's playing in the rest of East Asia. I mean, yeah. remember, the United States is in the midst of trying to negotiate this, quote, high standards, unquote, trade agreement, the Trans-Pacific Partnership, 
which is considered by most um, American allies in the region as central to maintaining America's predominance in the Pacific, central to anchoring, you know, our sort of open markets norms, um, in contrast to, you know, the model that the Chinese are trying to build. And so it's interesting that at the same time, we're kind of making the case that, hey, these norms are good for everybody. And, you know, if we can all sign up to these, a rising tide lifts all boats. But, you know, if you're going to go outside the fence, we will go after you. So it's combining the negotiating side and kind of trying to create a magnet for these norms with very aggressive enforcement of the norms. That's that's pretty new. And, you know, and I wonder how much it has to do or not, um, within the administration's thinking, with the other ways we're seeing them push back more aggressively on China in the region, especially around, you know, Spratly Islands and these other maritime disputes. Mm. I mean, one of the questions that I had immediately when I saw this is whether the Chinese will retaliate by arresting Americans. Right. And, you know, one of the great things about being a society that is not ruled by anything like law is that you can kind of do what you want, and when you need a hostage or a negotiating trip, the you know you can beat the law till it confesses on that. And um, the trouble with that, from the Chinese perspective, is that you know there, if you start doing that, your foreign investment could start drying up real fast. Mm-hmm. And so this may be an area where if you can actually get your hands on the people, if you can name and shame and arrest, you may, this may end up being a pretty significant lever, but only if you can get your hands on the people. Do you think there's a chance that they, like in a sort of espionage context, that we would trade this guy for something? Or now that it's in the law enforcement domain and he's being prosecuted as a criminal justice issue, that we wouldn't play that kind of a game? You know, it's a funny thing, because I don't think we have any significant number of U.S. people being held for espionage in China. And certainly, yet, yet, (laughs) we certainly do have a history of trading spies for spies. I don't think we have much of a history of trading spies for anything else. Mm -hmm. Um, And and we are alleged, I mean, the, the government is alleging that these guys were acting on behalf of the Chinese government. Well, sort of. So the statute requires that they allege that. But there's, they're not alleged to have uh, worked on behalf of the People's Liberation Army or any spy agency. The organ of the Chinese government that they're alleged to have worked on behalf of is this state-owned university, which they, you know, mm-hmm. would have helped enrich. Mm-hmm. And so it's it's kind of more classic industrial espionage than it is sort of state-sponsored that complicates the idea of an yeah. exchange, I exactly. guess, because presumably the U.S. government is not sending people out to do commercial espionage right. For, right. for U.S. companies. Right. So how about another awkward segue? Mm. Let's awkwardly segue to visiting foreign officials. Oh! Well, that's not too awkward. Oh, we can oh, make it more oh. awkward. <laughs> and what they eat for lunch. Oh, yeah. What do they eat for lunch? Well, I, I had the, the pleasure and honor, actually, of having lunch today, uh, along with a couple dozen other people, um, with the visiting president, uh, uh, Kaida Sebsi of Tunisia. What did he wear? <laughs> 
Prada, darling. Ah, of course, <laughs> of course. You know, we really need to ask that question more often about our visiting foreign officials. Who did he wear to the, the Oval Office yes, meeting? Exactly. What tie was it? A Ferragamo, right? Because we would ask that of women. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, we definitely want to know, and uh, and I suspect it was probably a very fine European tie. Although I have to say, it didn't make much of an impression on me. It could um, not be as good as as um, Helsinki Barak suits, which had his name stitched into the stitching over and over and over right? again. Yeah, if you look at like where the piping or the stitching would be, find me a photo of that. I'm so curious we'll to see that. There are tailors who will weave that for you. Well, I mean, either that if or you're Helsinki Barak, if you're yeah. Helsinki Barak, he probably threatened to torture them and their children. But. <laughs> well. Okay, so um, so Asebsi is in town this week, and, and I thought it was an interesting contrast to last week's parade of Gulf monarchs um, in the Gulf Cooperation Council summit at Camp David with President Obama, that this week President Obama is meeting with the first democratically elected president of a consolidated Tunisia. Tunisia has been through two rounds of national elections. They drafted a new democratic constitution, got it approved. They have a, a coalition government with parties from left, right, and center. And um, and so this is a real milestone, right? And it should be all about democracy and progress and, you know, shared values. And, in fact, this visit is all about security, which is why yeah. I'm bringing it up here on the podcast. Um, because Tunisia is um, beset by about a million refugees from the civil war in Libya, uh, constant efforts at infiltration by ISIS and other terrorist groups from uh, from neighboring Libya and from the south, uh, and um, a domestic terrorism problem as well. And we know, of course, that Tunisia sends more fighters to the Syrian and Iraqi jihad than any other country in the Arab world, which is amazing because it's only got 11 million people. Um, and so... Actually, a large part of the agenda for this bilateral visit is not celebrating democracy, although that's certainly a theme, but it's all about counterterrorism cooperation. And to me, it just underscored, you know, first of all, Asebsi, who is in his 80s and very spry and very smart, um, and jokingly said, you know, I remember Tunisia's independence. I have seen it through all its phases. Yes. <laughs> um, and... Uh, and, you know, he was saying there can't be democracy without the rule of law and security has to be our first priority. And, of course, at a certain level, that's true when you're dealing with total state collapse next door. But then on the other hand, you know, this little light that's shining, we don't want it to go out. And on the U.S. side, our obsession with ISIS and, you know, the only thing that's keeping us in the Middle East at this point, at this point if you if you believe everything that Obama's um, senior officials are saying, is counterterrorism concerns, you know, that's our priority as well. And so we're on track to triple our military aid to, to, to little old Tunisia. To triple it? Mm -hmm. And how is, how is Tunisia doing on the democracy front? I mean, you, you describe the risk of the light going out. Is the light going out, or are they kind of puttering along democracy-wise? You know, in terms of institution building, constitution and parliament and stuff, they've done really amazingly well. But the hard part in many de democratic transitions comes after that. Can you make the economy deliver for people so they don't give up? Um, and, you know, facing this terrorist threat, there is a lot of pressure. Um, and and some of the parties, including Assemsi's party, are in favor of uh, curtailing civil rights in the name of domestic security keeping a closer eye on NGOs, um, curtailing rights to protest, 
curtailing free speech. And that, I think, is probably the biggest danger to Tunisian democracy right now is, you know, giving in to that demand for order. And did he talk about the uh, the aftermath of the museum shooting and and uh, how they're dealing with that and the tourism effects on the country? Or, lack of, or the, the impact that's had on tourism, negative impact, I would assume. Yeah, uh, negative impact. And I think that getting tourists back is a huge priority for them. Um, they are looking also for American companies to come invest, including in their tourism industry. And I think they're very hopeful that they'll get some good news on that front this week. Uh, but, you know, if you ask what kind of support or, or economic aid do you most need from the United States, they don't say, you know, give us jobs programs. They say, send us your tourists. Mm-hmm. Um, and your guns. And your guns, yes. But they're already, they're already pretty confident that they're getting the guns. Okay. Send us your guns, your tourists, your refugees wanting to be free. Sure. Yeah. Yeah, let's build them a statue and put that in the harbor. <laughs> Mm. Yeah. I lift my lamp beside the golden door. <coughs> oh, boy. That's an awkward segue. Wow. Well, it's... <laughs> a, that was an awkward quote <laughs> with a very dark undertone. So now let's talk about something else. Yes, let's talk about interrogating terrorists. Um, so now that's a light subject. Very light. A very, very light subject. It's a little breezy thing that I wrote this week. I'm being shameless. My word plays an article that I wrote. Uh, with my colleague at the Daily Beast, Nancy Youssef. Um, so there was this raid uh, last week where Delta Force commandos went into Syria uh, with the intention of capturing this guy named Abu Sayyaf, who is sort of like a senior vice president-level guy in ISIS. He's been described as the CFO, as somebody who knew a lot about the their, their, their oil racket, um, kind of kept the books for them. Well, as it turns out, as we reported, uh, the one of the, if not the primary thing, but one of the big things that we wanted to know why we wanted to get this guy is because we think he has operational knowledge about how ISIS kidnaps Westerners, where they hold them, how the ransom system works, and particularly may know about when American hostages were killed, where they were held, and may even have more information about Kayla Mueller, who was wow. the only American woman that ISIS was holding. And there have been I hesitate to mention this because there are quite unconfirmed reports, but that Mueller may have even been given to Abu Sayyaf as some kind of oh, wow. a, a bride. <clears throat> there was a Yazidi uh, girl, young woman, 18, I believe, <clears throat> who he was holding as a slave, so he at least has some you know, pension for taking foreign people and taking them into his custody. Anyway, Abu Sayyaf is killed in the raid, uh, and who is not killed is his wife, Um Sayyaf, and she is now being interrogated by the FBI's special high-value interrogation team for information on Western hostages. And what I thought was interesting, a couple things that really piqued my interest about this. One, we're interrogating people about hostages who are already dead. Mm-hmm. So obviously what we're being told from our sources is that well, we want to know what plans they may have for others, uh, which is, of course, vital information for you to get. Um, but presumably, Americans are going to be in that region taking a lot more security precautions. We hope there are no more hostages. So that you kind of get to thinking, well, what else is it that you are really after here? Is it information and answers about Kayla Mueller? Uh, is it locations of other hostages that we don't know about? Um, it was just very, very intriguing. And intriguing to me, too, that the administration was so keen to talk about the raid itself mm-hmm. and also this issue. I mean, I think that there's a little bit of a PR job here going on as well. 
that raid was announced in a week that was a very bad week, as we alluded to at the top of the show. Uh, and the administration, I think, is trying to have some victories here publicly. And so I think that's one reason why they were willing to talk about the raid. There's another thing that they may be fishing for when they talk to her, which is, you know, you're always interested in whether new intelligence sources validate or refute information you got from other intelligence sources. And so, you know, one of the things, even if the subject, Kayla Miller, is dead, even if you want to know, did the people who you were relying on for information about that give you stuff that was good or stuff that was lousy, and, you know, uh, because that affects your willingness to trust those sources in the future. Right. Well, it, isn't it, I mean, if this woman was the wife of this high-ranking figure, isn't it also likely that they're pumping her for intelligence just on the structure of the organization and yeah. the personalities, both to validate information they already have, but also potentially to to flesh out more of our understanding of this organization? You know, we could have a discussion about the value of the decapitation strategy, but there's no question that decapitation is part of the approach that the U.S. is taking toward ISIS as it did toward al-Qaeda. And so if you want that to be effective, you need to know who these who the right guys are right. to hit in order to collapse the, the organization. And um, and so I assume that's got to be a component of it, too. Can I just make just pause for a moment and make a public service announcement? Because when the news broke, or rather when the White House released the news of this raid and the, uh, the death of Abu Sayyaf and the capture of Umm Sayyaf, more than one American reporter... Of more than a decade after we began our involvement against these uh, Islamist movements that use nom de guerre, like Abu this and Abu that, reported that uh, the Sayafs, as though it were their family name, had been raided and Abu was killed, That's but true. his wife, Um, was captured. And I really think we need like a, the equivalent of an AP style book. Yeah, this, don't you? This is why I'm also very glad. I mean, I'll shout it again to my colleague Nancy Youssef, you know, who is of Egyptian extraction and speaks Arabic, and was very quick to point out to like all the white guys in the office, like, no, Um fam- is not her name. Um is not her name, and nor is Abu his name. And Sayyaf <laughs> probably means sword, and you know, and these are absolutely it's 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 father and mother of Sayyaf, father of Sayyaf and mother of Sayyaf. Right, right, is exactly. The, is the translation, and this I means mean, good lord, nothing. people. It's not on his driver's license. Right. You know, Yasser Arafat was Abu Ammar. Yeah. In the 1970s, we were dealing with Abu Jihad. This is not hard. <laughs> yeah, it's not hard. But yet, we're 10 years in and we're still not exactly all kind of hip with, you know, the whole Arabic thing. Um, but I just want to say one more thing about this, too, which is that this also brings up the uncomfortable set of questions about whether or not it is, in fact, better to try and capture mm. these individuals to gain intelligence from them as opposed to conducting these strikes and just wiping them out. And, you know, it's interesting. Adam Schiff, who's the ranking Democrat on the Intelligence Committee in the House, questioned openly whether this was worth it and whether this was worth putting troops in harm's way. And what just are we to getting kill at? the guy. Just to, just to kill the guy. And, I mean, and it, it was clear that we were capturing information, too, and this may also be why administration officials were willing to kind of release more about what we were after them for to make it seem like it was worth it. But, you know, we have to just assume that we're going to potentially get, potentially we'll get a lot of really valuable information about this group from doing this. I just wonder whether this signals a new willingness on the part of the administration to do raids like this or whether this was just a 
rare moment of opportunity, and the intelligence was very good, and we thought there'd be very minimal casualties, and we said, okay, this time, do it. Look, he was that's... also the money man, right? Well, he, he's been described as the CFO, but I talked to a former official who said, look, we know lots about, we, he said, we know many things about how the money moves and who some of these guys are. To put boots on the ground, it would have to be something more valuable than that. Right, I mean, mm. so look, there's two questions, and they get conflated, and, but they actually operate independently. One is, do you do a capture or kill operation? And the second is, do you do it remotely or do you send in people to do it? And both of those questions are answered by balancing risk to forces against uh, the possible intelligence benefit of, um, of that you get by putting people in. And the, the, those two benefits are twofold. One is you may capture the person alive, and it's totally clear to me they wanted to capture Abu Sayyaf alive. They got a kind of consolation prize in That's his wife. That's Mr. Sayyaf to That's you. Mr. Sayyaf <laughs> to me. Um, and, um, but the second issue is when you blow up a compound, you blow up everything in it. And the stuff um, around people when you detain them or when you kill them, whether, you know, that's the bin Laden raid, right? I mean, they got a trove of information. There are a bunch of computers at this site, uh, and that stuff is really gold. And so I, I do think we have waxed and waned in terms of our willingness, and that ranges from, you know, when we caught Abu Zubaydah yeah. to fly in doctors from all over the world to keep him alive, you know, when he was shot in a firefight. Yeah. Um, on the other hand, um, we've also gone through periods where we're very loath to risk forces and we're in inclined to forego the intelligence in order to use drones and keep our people safe. And both, of, uh, both have places. Um, and this may be an indication that we're willing to do more right in there yeah. than we were you know, six, eight months ago. So for you two who have been following that waxing and weaning, um, do you think that this potentially presages more engagement by more American operations inside Syria? My gut tells me probably not, because I don't think that the hesitation, the, 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 the trepidation over loss of life has been terribly diminished. But yes, if... To Ben's point, you start gathering very precise intelligence about more of these guys. You find out where they are. Clearly, our intelligence collection has gotten a lot better than it was four or five months ago. We've been doing some fairly high-value strikes. We know, I think we know more about the organization than we did. So I would say yes if you have the information that can back it up. And I think what the president pretty clearly has said and, and implied is that he's willing to authorize these strikes under certain conditions, and one of them is we need to have a very, very good idea of who is going to be there when we get there, and as much as possible know what we're going to be up against. Um, and by the way, we killed like 12 or 15 of them, and none of our people died. Yeah, it's kind of neat. It still amazes me. I'm just going to give a little wow shout to the uh, special operators out there. It's I don't Wow. Know, I don't know, wow, guys. I don't know how they do it, but they do it. Well, as General Mattis says, it, it's, it's fun killing those guys. <sighs> Um, speaking of uh, fun, so there's the picture of Hosni Mubarak's 
pinstripes and look at the pinstripes. Oh wow! And it's in English. It is. Why didn't he do it in Arabic? Well, probably because really he went artistic. to several row, and the tailor wouldn't, you know, do it. Ooh. I don't we, know. So we should uh, include that picture <laughs> on the on, on the, the website. Isn't that awesome? I'm pretty sure it's real. Uh, you know, I want a suit. That says Mubarak in the pinstripes. Right. Well, it's probably on. It's probably for sale. <laughs> I mean, he's not using it anymore. At Sotheby's. <laughs> right. Exactly. <laughs> Along with the eleven suitcases that his wife tried to pack before being ordered out of the presidential palace. Don't you think that if you're married to a dictator, you've just basically got a go bag or like a go, you know, boudoir? Apparently bureau? not. <laughs> <laughs> Note to future uh, dictators and their right. wives. Right. Get get your go bag ready, get ladies. Your go bag ready. Just preposition yeah. go bags in various foreign capitals <laughs> where you might be retiring. Um, all right, Tamara, let's uh, go to your object lesson. What do you have for us this week? Actually, I think Ben's object lesson has to oh, go Oh, wait. First. No, you do have to go. Well, let me go first then because it'll okay. be better. So my object lesson, I, I talked about a movie last week, uh, that uh, movie um, Good Kill with Ethan Hawke uh, about drones. I'm doing another sort of movie this week, which is PBS Frontline. Great, great uh, series. Uh, no Ethan Hawke, though. No Ethan Hawke, Damn. but it is a... Very interesting and provocative documentary on the CIA's rendition, rendition detention interrogation program, aka the torture program, uh, and it also takes a look at uh, the access that the CIA gave to the makers of Zero Dark Thirty. Mm. Uh, there's nothing new or particularly revelatory for people who, particularly for people who follow this stuff as we all have, but it really does lay out sort of the essence of the debate between the CIA and the Senate Intelligence Committee over what really happened in that program. Um, and I have to say, it comes down pretty hard against the CIA and pretty hard against Hollywood. Uh, and uh, I, just, I just recommend it to people. I thought it was a really compellingly done documentary. If What's you it called? It is called... It's called Secrets, Politics, and Torture. Subtle. Uh, but, you know, no, it's good. But John, SEO ready, though. It's very SEO ready. Uh, John Rizzo is sort of like in it more than anyone. Tells some really great stories. Right. And well-dressed, I'm sure. Oh, very well-dressed. Although I doubt that his name is spelled out in pinstripe, what this pins on pinstripes on his suit. Although, if anybody was going to do it. If anybody was going to do it. John Rizzo would do it. Yep. Uh, so, yeah, highly recommend it. Go check it out, and, uh, you know, you'll enjoy it and find yourself probably screaming at the television, too. So, Ben, what is your object? Well, my object is the reason that I have a bruise uh, running the length of the right side of my body and big scrapes all over my arms which is uh, that this weekend I purchased a Segway, which I am using to commute uh, from my house to the Brookings Institution. Just and how far? It's four miles. Okay. Um, and it's a beautiful commute because uh, it is not uh, crushed together like sardines on the metro. It takes no gasoline. Uh, I don't sit in traffic because it's legal to ride it on the on the on the sidewalk. You're not sitting on anything. You're not sitting on it. It's it's actually extremely pleasant and fun. But here is the reason that it is important to discuss this on rational security. The uh, myth that you cannot fall off a Segway is just that. Actually, I, th- I think you're what, saying that this is an insecure, dangerous device. I, I'm saying that if you're out there thinking I'm going to buy a Segway because it's a form of motorized transportation that's in fact totally safe. You are not engaged in rational security. You're engaged in, as I was, delusional thinking. Because oh um, it is, in fact, very plausible, possible to fall off a Segway. I managed it twice within the first uh, day and a half of owning one. And um, 
and am cut and bruised. <laughs> I'm and just I, imagining the image now. And I was in, I was at Aikido yesterday, and uh, somebody bumped me in in the bruise, and I had to confess to what is really the most humiliatingly dorky injury it is possible to have, a Segway injury. I fell off my Segway. <laughs> oh, it is an awkward Segway, yeah. indeed. Wow. Well, we will we'll have to... So I just have a question for you. Yeah. Why did you let him buy this? Did you know he did? Did he just do this? Like, you showed up one day and there was this he, he, Segway in the driveway? He did just do it without... Oh without uh, talking it through with me first. It was an impulse purchase in a sense, but he'd been threatening to do it for so long oh. that the kids and I had all um, decided that he was just joking. And then he came home this weekend with the Segway. And we all see the results, which just goes to show that midlife crises never <laughs> turn out well for their sufferers. Where the and hell do you buy a Segway? Yeah, that's a great question. Where do you buy I'm a Segway? I'm looking at what segway. on Amazon right now. Capital Segway. Could you buy a Segway on Amazon? Apparently. Would it come like via UPS? The guy will pull I it off I hope you wouldn't truck? drive it to my house. <laughs> <laughs> I want to be the first one to fall off of it. Well, Ben, in, in honor of your new Segway, my object lesson is the gift that I'm going to bestow on you to aid your safe and secure Segway use, which is this collection of adhesive bandages, gauze pads, and antibiotic ointment. Thank I you, love dear. you, honey. Aww. You're taking care of him. <laughs> That's so sweet. Wow. All right. So I'm going to go try the Segway today, right? Yeah. We're going to let me take it out for a spin. Yeah. Just, okay. you know, we'll be standing by. We can call 911. I am wearing, as it will, when we'll put this on the site, I'm wearing, a, I'm wearing a very nice suit and a lovely tie. And so. let the record reflect, though, that there is a rip in Shane's shirt before You're not supposed to see that. he gets on the Segway. I noticed that you this morning. You were supposed to keep your jacket on. Yeah. Well, I know. That's, I mean, I don't just sort of take it off. I take it off for podcasting purposes, but I'm going to wear it. Busted. Busted, in fact, in more <laughs> ways than one. All right, that brings us to the end of our show. Uh, Rational Security is a production of Spaghetti on the Wall Productions. You can go to our website, spaghettionthewallproductions.com, and look at our total slate of excellent podcasts. Uh, nothing and too awkward. And awkward segues. Yeah, yeah, yeah. There's nothing too awkward on our, on our slate roster of podcasts. We have some more in the works, so stay tuned. Just whetting your appetite for that. You can follow us on Twitter at RATL Security. Uh, you can download the podcast, of course, on iTunes, Stitcher, Instacast. There must be some other groovy ones out there, too, that I don't Good know about. Good Pods. Good Pods? I think. Okay. Go to Good Pods. If you Never can. heard that of that. Like I may have really just, yummy lima beans. I just may, may have just made that up. That sounds like a salad place. Or Good a pods. really cool 1970s, like... Furniture store? Yeah. 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 Oh, we didn't talk about Mad Men. All right, we're going to remember that. Um, uh, you can go, you go there. And when you do, please leave a rating or a comment. It's the best way to let everyone know about the show. Our editor is Jen Howell. Our music this week was performed by Ben's Bruised Bottom Band. <laughs> Good one. Like no. You know, performed our music. It was Sophia Yan, as always, the enigmatic and lovely Sophia Yan. We thank her very much. Uh, that's it for this week. I'm Shane Harris on behalf of Tamara Kaufman Wittis and awkward Ben Wittis and his segue. We'll talk to you next week. A lot can happen in the next three years. Like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare tri-term medical plans are available for these changing times. 
Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer budget-friendly, flexible coverage for people who are in between jobs or missed open enrollment. The plans last nearly three years in some states, with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. So for whatever tomorrow brings, United Healthcare tri-term medical plans may be for you. Learn more at UH1.com.